Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Has anybody ever said to you this phrase? You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, well, I, I remember hearing that when I was younger, and I thought, okay, if I just come to Jesus, then all my problems would go away. So you come to Jesus, and you expect things to get wet, better, but quite honestly, it didn't seem like that's what happened. It seems like things ended up getting worse, because as life goes on, things happen. People you love get sick in ways you never expected. Relationships that you're in all of a sudden crumble and they fall apart right when you're, they're in your hand. A job that you've always wanted and that you've always hoped for, you lose your job and your career dreams go away. And you find yourself on your knees saying, God, I thought you had a wonderful plan for my life, but it definitely doesn't feel that way anymore. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? What do you do when life falls apart? That's the question we're going to be looking at this morning. As a church, we have been studying through the book of Genesis, and this morning we come to Genesis chapter 39. We're going to pick up with the story of Joseph. We actually met Joseph uh, two chapters ago when the Bible introduced him to us in Genesis chapter 37. And what we learned at that time is he was a 17-year-old kid, but he was just, he was just a nasty guy. I mean, most of us don't think of Joseph that way, but he was. He, there was 12 brothers in the family, 12 kids, and he was the next to the youngest. And what he would do is we saw he would actually lie and bend the truth to get out of work, to make his brothers look bad. He was lazy didn't want to go out in the field, tried to stay home. And then when it came to his father's favoritism, he just flaunted it and like walked around with a little Gucci sport coat and said, Daddy loves me best. I mean, just one of those young guys that you just want to take and just pound. You guys ever met those people? Prideful, stuck-up young folks that just need a lesson? That, you know, you guys are going like, yeah, yeah, we all know them. But that was Joseph. Without clouds. In fact, his brothers, uh, when Joseph came to see them, it was approximately 65 miles away from home. Joseph came to see him in the distant, distant field, and the first thought that came to their mind was, this is our chance to murder him. And when your own biological brothers want to kill you, things are not going well at home. Thankfully, what happened, uh, instead of murdering his skin, Judah, at the last minute, intervened and said, let's just sell him into slavery. Here comes a caravan of Ishmaelite traders, and they saved his skin and tried to make money from it rather than bloody it. And Joseph was sold into slavery, and will pick up his life today as he's a slave in Egypt. But between chapter 37 and chapter 39 we're looking at this morning is chapter 38 that we looked at last week, and it seems like it's out of place, and it really isn't. Last week, we looked at the story of Judah. That was the brother that came up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery. 
we saw uh, that he was also a really ultra-wicked, messed-up guy who grew up in what would have been the ancient equivalent of a Christian home. <laughs> he left his family. He intentionally pursued and married a Canaanite pagan wife, a wife who didn't know Christ. In fact, two of his three kids were so wicked, they were struck dead by God. And when you're, <laughs> two of your kids get struck dead by God, you are not a good father. It did not work out well for you. And the interesting thing is after Judah's pagan wife dies, right away, a little over a week later, we saw he gets involved with a prostitute, or at least the woman he thought was a prostitute, actually ended up being his uh, daughter-in-law. Judah was a guy who just easily and constantly gave in to sexual temptation. And here's the contrast. This morning we meet Joseph who fought tooth and nail against sexual temptation. You see how these are contrasted together right next to one another in Scripture? Let's go ahead and jump in and read Joseph's story. We're going to start with the first five verses of Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. In Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph was a teenager, we saw that he was 17 years old in that chapter. Next week, when we'll study a little bit more of what happened when he was in the dungeon, Joseph was age... 30. What you realize is there's a 13-year period of time between when we, Joseph first goes into Egypt and when Joseph is in the dungeon. And most of us miss that. Most of us sort of intellectually compress these things together and think they took place in a matter of weeks or just a matter of months. That's not true. Often what God's work in our life takes place over a long period of time. Isn't that true? God works usually as a crockpot, not like a microwave when it comes to each one of us. He works over decades, not usually over minutes. The other thing we need to realize, oh, by the way, let me mention this to you. I forgot to mention. As we study this, we'll find that Joseph was in Potiphar's household for approximately 11 years, and he's going to be in the prison for a little bit more than two years. So it gives you an idea of how long this takes place. Second thing is Potiphar. It says Potiphar is the captain of the guard, and that doesn't mean much to us. The rough equivalent of that today is he is the head of the secret service in Egypt. Very high-stress job. A lot of time when he's not able to be at home. Uh, he is head of security for the pharaoh. 
He is the one that is in charge of executions in the country. He is the one that runs the prison for the political prisoners. So you, when you're running a prison, you're in charge of executions and you're in charge of you know, the Pharaoh's security. You have a lot on your plate. And that is part of what's going to play into things that happen later on in this chapter. The other thing I'd like you to do, I would like to, you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes when he ends up in Potiphar's household. When he was sold into slavery in Egypt, he was that spoiled rich kid who tried to get out of work whenever he could. But here he is in Egypt. Joseph was trying to get out of work. Now Joseph is going to spend the rest of his life working for no pay. Joseph grew up speaking Hebrew. He's in a country where they speak Egyptian he doesn't even know the language. You guys ever been to a foreign country or lost in a foreign city and you can't even talk to somebody to find directions? That was Joseph's situation. As for encouragement, there is no one following God around him. No family, no friends. He is completely and totally alone. I think we need to picture that situation. This is the perfect opportunity for someone to become lost and spiraled in depression. This is the perfect opportunity to have your future crushed and crumpled like a piece of tinfoil because he sees no light at the end of this tunnel, no hope for the future in front of him. But as we're going to study when we get to the end of this message, he makes some very important choices that will help him come through this time. And just like him, we're going to learn how we have to make some very important choices at the end of the message when life doesn't go according to plans to help us come through it at the end. But the main picture in this narrative is not the important choices that Joseph makes to get through. It's God. It is God and His sovereignty over all things. Here's what I want you to realize. Seven times in this chapter, Moses essentially says the same thing. He says, and the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. When it looked like there was absolutely no hope, looked like there was naturally no future, when God wasn't showing up, when God's voice wasn't breaking in, when he seemed like he was all alone and had no encouragement, God was still with him. And here is the point that Moses, I think, is trying to drive home to us, or at least one of them. Each one of us goes through tough times in life where the world falls apart. And you get on your knees and you pray and it feels like your prayers aren't getting any higher than the ceiling. And things go from bad to worse. And you say, God, where are you? And here's the point. Just as God was with Joseph in the times when he felt all alone, if you are a Christian this morning, God is also with you. Don't forget that. I put this in the box here on your notes. Just because life isn't turning out the way I hoped, that doesn't mean God is against me or He isn't with me. 
We need to understand that. Now, what happens is Joseph, he makes some very good choices as he becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. He continues to work hard. He continues to do his best, and he continues to grow. And God providentially starts to bless the work of his hand. In fact, little by little, Joseph starts to climb, what do we call it, Potiphar's corporate ladder. In fact, uh, it's a perfect picture of Matthew 25, 21, where it says, those who are faithful in a little, God will be faithful, will be faithful in much. And he's faithful in little things. God continues to bless him and give him more and more responsibilities. And Potiphar keeps elevating him higher and higher as he goes. So as we get to 11 years into this, what happens is Joseph has come in from a teenage slave who couldn't even speak the language. And through the constant good choices, he has ended up with God's blessing, and of course only with God's blessing, to be in charge of essentially Potiphar's house. Look how this unfolds. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, and notice this, to he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to even be with her. But one day, when he was in the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment and said, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, He's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out in a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until, his master, until her master came home, and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. The situation at this point, after 11 years of faithful service there, is Joseph is in charge of everything in Potiphar's house because he is so busy at work, because he is head of the secret service. Leave it all in Joseph's hand, and it will go well. The only thing he has reserved for himself is what he has for dinner. It's the only choice he makes. Will it be steak? Ribs? Hot wings next Sunday? Or maybe Italian? Everything else Joseph is in charge of, and everything else is going well. And the text says here that Joseph is a 
27-year-old man at this point. He is well-built and handsome. This idea of well-built means, you know, Joseph is in the gym. Joseph is a buff dude. No flabbiness on this boy. 27 years old, one of those chiseled bodies, you know, just you can see every muscle fiber in him, darkly tanned, just a drop-dead gorgeous cover model kind of guy. That's literally what he looks like. And it says he is handsome. So that doesn't mean his body is just chiseled and ripped and cut. But his face looks like Brad Pitt. I mean, just one of those beautiful faces you just look at and like, wow, he's a really good-looking guy. Now, ladies, as I've been saying this, I can see you're imagining this right now. Don't do that in church. You're lusting. But you know what I'm talking about. This is what he looks like. Just chiseled and just amazing. Now, here's where you need to think about this. I was wondering, where does he get this look from? It just like pops out of nowhere? No, it doesn't. As we've studied our way through the book of Genesis, we learned about his mother, Rachel. Was Rachel a good-looking woman? Remember from our study? Yes, extremely so. That's his mother's side. Go back in his father's side. Rebecca. Back there, <laughs> one generation back. Was she a good-looking woman? Go back another generation. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was she a good-looking woman? Remember with the whole thing with the Pharaoh in Egypt and he wanted to take her? Yeah, she was a drop-dead gorgeous woman. So we have like all these like good-looking genes all happen to roll into one man in one generation. So he is an extremely, extremely good-looking guy. And Mrs. Potiphar cannot get him out of her mind. She is lusting after him big time, completely infatuated with this 27-year-old man who looks incredibly good. And where is her husband the whole time? At work. He's at the office. And who spends his days around her all the time? Joseph. And she's like, you know, honey, let's, uh, Joseph, let's play house. And then it says, and she says to him, lie with me. Last week, I told you that there's uh, a lot of times in the English translation, they sort of tone down the original Greek or Hebrew. That one's majorly toned down. The Hebrew is just one word. And the best, most literal way to translate it is this, sex now exclamation point. That's what she says to him. I mean, she is going to have her way with him no matter what. I have to have you. She is the prototypical desperate housewife before the television show comes out. Really. And I began wondering, okay, I know Joseph is a good-looking guy. He's 27, prime of his manliness. I know you're lonely, but why is this lady so captivated by lust for him? And then I did a little extra research. We learned that Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh. You look up the word officer in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word seris, and it says officer slash eunuch. You do the background research, and this is what you find. 
those closest to Pharaoh at this time in history submitted themselves to castration. It, why do they do this? Because it guarant helped guarantee there would be no coups to take over the kingdom. So Potiphar and his wife go along. He gets this job as head of secret service, and he loses his manliness as part of it. Do you think Mrs. Potiphar is a little frustrated right now? That helps explain why she is so incredibly desperate for him and must have him. Now, um, we don't know exactly what she looked like. She may have been an older woman, and I could give you some details as to why, but most likely I picture that this is a, Potiphar is a wealthy a uh, little later middle-aged man. And what do these wealthy middle-aged men like to have as their wives? Some kind of trophy woman, right? So that is exactly what I think he has. A trophy wife when he is no longer technically fully a man. And that's why she is so incredibly frustrated. And what she does is this. Um, she is in charge of the house. She's used to giving orders and, oh, I'm jumping around my notes. My eyes have gotten so bad, I can't find my, exactly where I'm at in my notes, so I'm just going to talk from my head. Here's the deal. She is used to giving orders to those people who live in the house. And she says to him, you lie with me, or sex now. And he says, absolutely not. And she becomes incredibly frustrated because he will not listen to her. And for the last 11 years, he has listened to every command they have given and has paid extreme, careful attention to following it. And, and, but he no longer will do this. Now, he gives reasons to her as to why he will not lie with her. And in his mind, he has armed himself with reasons that he can avoid this temptation. Because when you face temptation like this, like Joseph faced, strong sexual temptation, you have to arm yourself with reasons as to how to avoid it. These are the reasons he gave. First of all, he says, I cannot be with you because that would betray my boss's trust. I can't do that to him. Secondly, that would ruin your marriage. You may think that having me is like the right way to, to bring pleasure and joy, but all it will do is destroy the fabric of your marriage itself. Because marriage is designed between, to be between one man and one wife for life. And if somebody else enters into that relationship, it doesn't just go away. It tears away at the fabric of marriage for years to come. Some of you are single and you're young. You say, well, okay, well, that's appropriate. I don't want to become involved in adultery when you're married, but I'm not married yet. And I'm dating somebody. So that means we could do whatever we want when we're dating each other, right? Because we're not married yet. There's no adultery involved. I want to challenge you to think of this a little differently. As a single and dating young man or young woman, the person you are dating is somebody else's husband. It's somebody else's wife. May eventually be your husband. May eventually be your wife. But right now, when you're dating them, there's no guarantee that relationship's going to work out. How would you like somebody else treating 
your future wife, your future husband, right now when they're dating, it would be pretty much like, I would like them to keep their hands off, save as much of their intimacy as they can for my wedding night, because that's the right place to put it. In, see, in the same way, you can sort of start to commit adultery even before marriage by fornicating with people who you're not married to. So Joseph, we saw, number one, what he did is he armed himself with a proper way of thinking about this strong temptation of adultery. He said, I, I can't break the marriage covenant. I can't cheat against my boss. And not, not only that, but this technically would be um, sinning against God himself because God sees all. He knows all. And what does the scripture say? God judges those who do not honor the marriage bed. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So he says, you know, God has blessed me. I don't want God fighting against me. I want God fighting for me in this thing. I couldn't sin against him. So he has this practical mental armor about how to resist temptation. But here's the other thing I want you to understand. He also puts a really practical strategy in place to resist temptation. It says that he refused to even be with her. When you are faced with temptation, in this case it was sexual temptation, one of the best ways to beat that temptation is to avoid being around it. True? That's what he did. I know people who have struggled with alcoholism. They say, I'm fine <laughs> until I go into Casey's and I see the beer on the shelf. Well, don't go into Casey's. Pay for your gas with a credit card at the pump. Other people who have been involved in drugs tell me, you know, I, I'm fine, I'm away from it, but if I happen to go to a party and somebody puts a line, a Coke line on the table, I just melt. Well, don't go to the parties. That's how you beat the temptation. You stay away from it. Or when I'm around this person, I really find myself tempted to think and to act in ways that I know are inappropriate. Well, avoid that person. Go into work a different way. Get your office away from them. Do what you can to avoid it. Stay away from temptation. That's the best way to, to that's the first practical way to beat it. But here's the problem. Steering away from temptation doesn't always enable you to avoid temptation. Because look what happened to Joseph. She waited until everyone else was out of the house. And when he was just there alone, she went and she grabbed him and held him and said, come lie with me. Or in the vernacular, just two words. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The commentators who write on this say, don't picture her as somebody wearing a winter jacket. She's trying to seduce Joseph. She is extremely skimpily clad. She is pressing her body onto his body and won't let him go. Now, in that time, they would wear a long T-shirt, sort of a tunic, the way they would do it. That was your outer garment and sort of what you're covering. She is literally tearing the clothes off his body. She gets that off of him. So some of you guys are like, okay, I'm, 
me, 20, they're thinking to yourself, 27-year-old man, a beautiful woman in front of me, just desperate for me, skimpily clad, tearing my clothes off my body, I'd be done. But here's the amazing part. Joseph isn't done. Joseph runs. He does the appropriate thing. Here's the second thing you need to know about avoiding a temptation. The first was you always steer clear from it and don't put it in front of you. The second thing is when you are faced with temptation and you cannot avoid it, you run. You run as fast as you can, as far as you can to get away from it. This is a command of God. In fact, not only does Joseph run, but what does it say in, say in 2 Timothy 2.22? Flee youthful passions. There it is again. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality, always run. And here's why this is so important. Because if you have ever found yourself tempted sexually, and you sit there and you try to negotiate with the temptation, or you try to negotiate with the temptress, what do you do? You talk yourself into temptation over time. You don't talk yourself out of temptation. That's the way it always works. Here's the deal. We think when we're faced with temptations, I'm going to stand here, I'm going to keep thinking about it, I'm just going to resist it. I'm going to look at it, but I won't do anything about it. Is that the way it works? You give in to it. The right response is to run as fast and as far as you can go. Now, there are times when we are supposed to resist things, but it's not the temptations we're supposed to resist. The Bible says what we are supposed to resist are the trials. When you are under a trial, when God has a difficult time in our life, we are supposed to bear up under the trials and stand there and endure them. And God uses those trials to produce spiritual maturity in our life. Look what it says in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are what make us more spiritually mature. Here's what we're supposed to do. When faced with temptation, we're supposed to run. When faced with trials, we're supposed to endure and grow. But what do we do? Usually the exact opposite. When faced with temptations, we continue to stare at them and slowly talk ourselves in. When we get into a trial, what do we want to do? Get out of it. Get away from it. Get escape from it. And thus forfeit the spiritual maturity that would come with bearing up under it. So you see these differences? Let me give you another example of how this works. How do you put a fish on a hook? You can't. You can't put a fish on a hook. All you can do is tempt him to put himself on the hook. You put the lure in the water. You move it up and down. You tempt the fish to put himself on the hook. What the fish should do is run, just like Joseph. Run away. He runs far away from the lure. 
he won't get tempted to bite the lure. But the longer he looks at the lure, he talks himself into biting it and finding himself hooked. That's the same way it works for you and me. When we're faced with temptation that we cannot avoid, run from it. Don't look at it. Don't talk about it. Don't negotiate on it. Don't think about it because you will be just like the fish and find your upper lip caught. Now, let's continue the story. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, there it is again, and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because what? The Lord was with him again. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Mrs. Potiphar says, if I can't have him, then I am committed to destroying him. And she frames him and says, he attempted to rape me. But there's some interesting pieces here. In that culture, if you were to attempt rape of somebody, the rape of a wife of somebody of that high status, it was an automatic capital punishment. Was Joseph killed? No. This makes me think that Potiphar, I think, actually suspected his wife. In fact, Potiphar puts him in prison. And if you look at this, the prison Joseph gets put into is the very prison that Potiphar has charged over. Now, it says that Potiphar was angered. But interestingly, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say who he was angry at. We think he was probably angry at Joseph because of the attempted rape that wasn't true. But it may have been ambiguous for a reason, because maybe he was actually angry at his wife for forcing him to lose the good services of Joseph, who was in charge of everything, and it was actually going so well. While we don't know exactly what Potiphar thought, we do know what it was like for Joseph in the prison. Psalm 105 talks about what it was like. It says, His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Imagine that, two years of having an iron collar around your neck and chains around your feet. And what did you do to deserve any of this? Nothing. You did the right thing. You said no to an illicit affair, an affair that was so incredibly hard to resist because of a beautiful woman who insisted on having you, and you said no, and he's treated like he did the wrong thing. And that, my friends, is probably the hardest part. The hardest part that Joseph faces is right here when he does the right thing and he gets treated as if he had done the wrong thing. That is going to be, in your life and mine, probably the most powerful temptation 
you and I will ever face. The temptation to absolute discouragement. The temptation to want to give up on God because why or where are you, God? Why don't you come to my rescue? I did the right thing and now you're not honoring me. Maybe you're not there after all. After all, I've never been to church since I was a teenager. I've been trusting and believing in you by faith and what little faith I have because there's not a single follower of God around here and I did what was right and you didn't do anything about it. That is the moment that Joseph faces. And the big message in this text is that even when it looks like in our lives, when plans do not go according to expected and life falls apart and you wonder when you're doing the right thing and you're seeing be treated as the wrong thing, God is still with you. He is with you and He will take care of you and He'll watch over you. That's the big message here. But that's the big message. I want to give you four practical truths to take with you into life in addition to it. As we follow this text, there are four choices that Joseph made along the way. Well, actually, there's more than four, but I'm only going to give you four that he made along the way that helped him make the best of life when it didn't go according to plan. Let me show you what they are. Number one, refuse to become bitter. Refuse to become bitter. Bitterness is a choice. It is how we respond to the hurt that is put into our life. When life doesn't go according to plan and things fall apart, you know what it's real easy to do? To make your identity the pain that was put into your life. I know some people that were abused as a child, and they always say in every conversation, and they're full-blown adults, well, you know, you know, I was abused as a child. That's why I just can't get over it. I know others who have had one, loved ones die, and they, they're bitter people. They always go back to that. They're angry. They're, I just can't get over it because this person that I love died in my life, and I can't move on. That is bitterness. Bitterness is taking the pain of your past and constantly remarinating your soul with it. It is blowing on those warm embers, constantly trying to fan them into flames. So you are always a grumpy, irritable person. Don't go there. You see, Joseph had an opportunity to be incredibly bitter. But if he had been incredibly bitter, God would really have not done all kinds of good with his life. In fact, I want to give you this thought. If you choose to be bitter and live in the pain of your past, I really guarantee you, you can't expect the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life in the present. Let me say that one more time. If you choose to be bitter and live in the pain of your past, don't expect the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life in the present. Look what the Scriptures say. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let's see how we grieve Him by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, there it is, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, we should be kind to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave us. Here's my simple point. How many bitter people do you know are kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving others? Anybody know them? Nobody who's bitter is kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. 
because the work of the Holy Spirit isn't manifest in that way because they're living in the past. So when life doesn't go according to plans, refuse to become bitter about it. Number two, make the best of a tough situation. We get to choose how we respond to the disasters that happen in our life. Sometimes what people do choose to do is they choose to be angry, they choose to whine, they choose to be nasty to those people they love and they come home, they let their spouse and they let their family have it because they are just angry at what happened to them. Joseph made the best of a tough situation. When he couldn't even speak the language, he tried to learn it. When he, didn't, when he was used to being catered to, he learned to become a slave because that was the situation in life he found himself. And he made the best of it he could. Let me give you an example. Some of you were single and you desperately wish you were married. You're not right now. I can't solve that problem in five minutes. You can't solve that problem in five minutes. God in His time may solve that problem. But right now, while you are single, make the best of that situation. Do things that only single people can do, that when you're married, you can't. I know like the CTI group here. You guys are a bunch of single adults that are taking this opportunity of this time in your life to travel with CTI. Something that's probably not going to work when you're married and have children, right? So you make use of this opportunity for your singleness. Others of you are praying for children, and God has not given you a child. I know that's very hard. And I was even reading about, you know, Naomi, or about Samuel and his mother when she couldn't get pregnant. You know, it's, it's a very hard thing. But make the best of that situation and try and say, you know, since I don't have kids, what are some things that my husband and I can do at this point to bring glory to God with our situation? Others of you are in a situation where you're not single, but you're married, and you're in a really tough marriage. A marriage where uh, your spouse is sick and your spouse is not able to give all kinds of love and affection to you. Make the best of that situation and love them like Jesus Christ and grow deeper in your faith in Christ because it's as you, you experience Christ's love for you that only then can you overflow and give love back to somebody else. Number three, commit to doing more than asked and better than expected. Here's my simple point. Did you notice in every situation Joseph found himself, he was given a promotion? You know why he was given a promotion? Because every single time he was in a situation, he did more than asked, and he did better than expected. If any of you are in management, who is the guy you're going to promote? The laziest guy on your team? The guy who clocks in late? And who clocks out early? The guy or the woman you're going to promote is the one that always does more than asked and always does better than expected. You, would you like to be paid more for what you do? Simple way to do it. You work with a higher level of excellence than everybody else, and eventually your boss will notice it and your paycheck will catch up. But what many times we do is we say, you know, I'm not going to work that hard because I'm not being paid that much. And so I'll just sort of be lazy, and I won't give my best, and you never get the promotion. 
You never necessarily move up the ladder to greater levels of responsibility. So, when you're in a tough situation, commit to doing more than asked and better than expected. And lastly, continue to do the right thing even if it produces the wrong results. This is the hardest thing. Joseph did the right thing when it was very hard and it produced the wrong results. He went in jail. And many times when we do the right thing, guys, I want to encourage you, many times over time God will bless us for that. Over time He will save us out of situations like Joseph was in. But I have to also tell you, I can't guarantee that will happen every time. That's not the way life works. But here's what you need to remember. This life is not all there is to life. This life is only the beginning. Someday, each one of us will stand in front of Jesus Christ. The only way we'll be in heaven is, of course, because of God's incredible mercy and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross and our faith in Him. But the Bible also says that God knows the truth about everything and that we are rewarded for how we live. When you do the right thing and you end up being punished as if you did the wrong thing, even if that punishment continues for the rest of your life or even if you lose your life because of it, know this, that when you stand in front of Jesus Christ who knows all there is about you and He knows that you did the right thing, you will be rewarded then. And that, my friends, is truly the only reward that really matters. Isn't it true? The smile of our Savior and the blessing of our Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for Joseph's life. I thank you for him being somebody who resisted incredible amounts of sexual temptation and for him to be a poster child for us who face times of temptation. And we say, if Joseph could resist and flee, I can too. I also thank you for Joseph being an example of someone uh, for us to follow, of what to do when life doesn't go according to plan. To know that, as it says repeatedly in the text, that even when we don't see your fingers on things, you are still with us. And you are still sovereign over us, and we can trust you when life falls apart. And also, Lord, the example of Joseph and the good choices he made when things went bad, of refusing to become bitter, making the best of a tough situation, and continuing to do right even when he got treated as if he did wrong. I pray that as we try and apply these things into our life this week, that you would help us to follow Jesus Christ. <laughs> And when life doesn't go according to plan, Lord, may we know that you've still got it all under control. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.